0: Hello, my name is Hannah. If we haven't met, um, let's do that soon. We have got a new little mini series, as I just said, about kind of on our vision going on at the minute. And the theme is connections. Last week, Alice spoke about our connection together as a body, as a community, about koinonia, which is what she said is a word that means more than community. It's the Greek word that encompasses a lot more than discipleship and friendships and that aspect of it. It's about embodying the Jesusness in a process of becoming something of an alternative society together, a counterculture that's marked by the transformational power of God and knowing his love. So this week is kind of the what then? Are we to huddle together as a royal priesthood, a holy nation on a holy hill? How are we to counter a culture That by now is certainly by no means coming to us, the church, for our answers. The words church and cultural engagement don't marry very well for us, do they? And I'll get to that, I've got stories about that. I've uh, demonstrated the love of Christ to working class shopping malls in the north of England with Youth Club Happy Hands musical skits. Oh, I know cultural engagement. But first, some Gospel of Matthew. The first four chapters of Matthew are Jesus going throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, performing miracles and healing the sick. And then we get to the Sermon on the Mount, the bit that his followers have been waiting for. The Jewish crowd would have known that following this teacher, this miracle worker, was going to mean some sort of break from their cultural traditions. But until now, they haven't heard much about the details. So here he is, on a slope, saying... If you want to do this, here is what I'm asking for from you. So this is it, the Beatitudes, the very famous introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, which is a word, a better translation for that is humble. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, better word for that is gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I'm just going to stop there for one moment to make sure that we're all on the same page. Because this would have sounded to them, as you can imagine, a bit like it sounds to us. This is not the triumphant, ahoy there, new king in town, battle cry that they were hoping for from a Messiah. But, importantly, this is not about God wanting us to be weak, or poor, or downtrodden, or persecuted. About him thinking that this is good for us, when bad things happen to us. It's important to know how we were supposed to understand this. He's actually saying something much more like, you want to follow me? Here are eight things that your character will inevitably have. Because this is how knowing me changes you. Humility, contentment, hunger for growth, compassion, willingness to work on yourself, being considerate, committed. This is what happens to your heart when you give it to me. We should also note that the characteristics and the corresponding blessings were never supposed to be taken separately, i.e. in order to know the kingdom of heaven you've got to make yourself humble, in order to know comfort you've got to mourn, or that we pick and choose the ones that we want to accept the corresponding yoke on your character. The characteristics or responsibilities and the blessings or privileges all belong together, all as things that he would make us be like. They are absolutely not to be seen as an alternative list of righteous characteristics, another law, fulfill these things in order to enter the kingdom. They are all, in their entirety, a statement of grace. They are a picture of life in God's kingdom. They are the first explicit indication that the presence of the kingdom produces changed lives. He's saying, I'm here, this happens now. Then immediately he gets to the mission and this is the bit that we're going to get into today. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I was just uh, reading the Bible, I tried to scroll up on it, (laughs) just to let you know what's happening to our brains. I'm coming back to that in a minute. These are two piercing metaphors given to a crowd of people professing their faith, their desire to follow him, saying, show everyone. Show them how good it is to know me. Show them yourselves. Show them your good works. Show them this way. Salt was, in these days, often used as a currency, a medium of exchange. That's how important it was because it was vital. It was vital for the preservation of meat and fish. They had obviously nothing else in terms of refrigeration. It was also an essential element of the diet of their livestock, It enhanced flavour, obviously, and it was also used as a fertiliser. So, salt prevented decay, it was nutritious, it enhanced flavour and growth. You, my disciples, are salt, and you are necessary for the health, sustenance, and welfare of the world. Knowing me transforms you, and you are now different. The bit about salt losing its saltiness, this was referring to a well-known rabbinic proverb of the day that was used to rebuff trick questions. The saying went, does the mule bear young? Can salt lose its flavor? All mules, by the way, are sterile. I didn't know that until this week. Um, Jesus is writing a well-known expression on impossibility, a bit like the one that we have about the leader of the Catholic Church defecating in a forest, that one. Except that one obviously means yes, And this means no. (laughs) I didn't confuse you. Can salt lose its flavor means obviously no. You can't lose your flavor. It's impossible. You're salt. You're also light. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. I mean, that's literally impossible also. But everybody would know that he's talking about the city of Jerusalem, the city that they thought was God's chosen city to save the world. And now he's saying something very different. Light is a massively important theme in the unfolding of scripture, profoundly contrasted with darkness. The typical Jewish home, the kind of lamp that he's talking about, was a fairly small kind of picture, Aladdin's lamp. And it would be placed on a stand and it would light the whole house. You are the light is a huge statement. He's telling his followers, these men and women, that they are the living demonstration of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Not the temple or the city or their nation. They aren't just carrying the light. They don't just have a message. They are light. The room is dark, but you walk in and it's light. I wonder what first comes to your mind if I ask you to think about the darkness in the room, or the darkness in our culture. I imagine, like me, you probably feel a little bit saturated with bad news about it. And I have a list of things here, but I literally don't even need to go through them. The meaning of the word culture is actually intrinsically linked to growth. Think cultivate, improve. And yet, no one thinks that's what's happening anymore, do they? No one thinks culture is going in the right direction. A recent massive intergenerational study on young Americans showed that in contrast to the 1% of Americans born in 1915 who experienced a major depressive episode at some point in their life, our current figure stands closer to 50%. That's evidence enough that something's going a bit wrong, isn't it? If you were to ask me about the thing that's terrifying me the most about our culture at the minute, it's this sort of universally almost experienced yet barely acknowledged digital addiction that we all have. I'm sorry if I've spoken to you this, about this recently because I'm somewhat of a, obsessive about it. The effects of this silent, insipid, ubiquitous thing that we all carry around with us, the effects of screen addiction in terms of neurology are actually pretty similar to the effects of alcohol and drug addiction. I'm not saying this to scaremonger at all. Those of us who use these things every day, however, and I hold my hands up, I am very, very rarely without a charged iPhone. The brain research shows that we have the same neurotransmitter inhibitions going on, the same anxiety triggered when the addiction isn't satisfied the same poor attention span, the same loss of control as drug and alcohol addicts. Screen time is inextricably linked to depression and mental unhealth and loss of empathy. Obviously, this is not the only factor going on, but the data is clear. And we don't even know yet what effect this is really having on iGen or Gen Z, or whatever you want to call them, the digital natives and their neurologies and their sociological realities that are being knit together around these very devices. And yet 80% of American teenagers have a smartphone. I realize this might not be as relevant to you as it is to Ed and I, whose nine-year-old daughter is currently increasing more and more pressure as kid after kid in her class gets their own phone. It's enough to make me start to consider the cabin in the woods, or wonder about the holy nation on a holy hill. Or can we just start a campaign and ban the smartphones from schools? It's got to be easily as bad as up for our kids as smoking, right? Tobacco's banned. The thing is, starting to remind myself of something. And I don't think I am operating on exactly the same fears as our parents and grandparents who might have opted to wage the culture wars as Christians to separate themselves from the evil of culture, but I don't sound that dissimilar, do I? Which is ironic, because I experienced a lot of this very first-hand. My parents, like a lot of good Christians, um, banned all sorts of bizarre things when the church became obsessed with the New Age movement. My Little Ponies, guys. My Little Ponies were banned from our house at one point. Those magical, satanic rainbow ponies. (laughs) At 14, this all got a bit more real for me. We had moved from the UK to Singapore and had a bit of a mess, a messy time with the schooling system there. It was a tumultuous year for us all. I'm one of five girls in various different schools, various different levels of chaos. One by one, we all ended up at a Brethren boarding school in India, the Brethren Church, if you don't know it, is pretty fundamentalist. And... In contrast to what I'm about to say, I actually have some incredible memories of my time there. Um, it was a really, really diverse school, um, kids from all over the world, and a lot of Indian kids as well, all different backgrounds, all together in one space, and I've got loads of happy memories, so I don't want to sound it, completely negative. So I've got lots of great friends from there. Like all young people, um, forget salt, the main currency for us in those days was our CD collection. And I arrived there, and it was absolutely everything to me. I'd been Before we'd left the UK, I'd been in a grand band. I'd played the bass. <laughs> my music collection was absolutely everything to me. And I arrived there, and actually quite publicly, I went through what everyone goes through, that, they, that the house Mistress goes through your CD collection to make sure there's nothing damaging in it. And I had all my Nirvana, all my Smashing Pumpkins, um, all my Pixies like everything that was held to be depressive or narcissistic or whatever it I mean, nihilistic rather than narcissistic, I think, whatever it was that they thought was evil about that, confiscated and destroyed. And when I objected, I was quickly labelled as rebellious, which until that point, I actually wasn't at all. We weren't allowed to have any physical contact with members of the opposite sex. Even hand-holding was banned. We weren't allowed to dance. Can you imagine forbidding children to dance. It was all to protect our innocence, of course. In a somewhat predictable and ironic twist of fate, I was expelled from there after about 15 months for smoking a doobie in a dorm with a boy. (laughs) Who I also kissed. And we'd never even danced together. We can laugh about it now. So, yes, for me, and I suspect, a few of you, the simplicity of us being salt and light and changing the world with our flavour and our health and our welfare and lighting up its darkness with our light, with ourselves, it all seems a bit warped. Less than 100 years ago, most Western Christians felt completely at home in Western culture because there was no division between mainstream cultural values and family and marriage and drinking being bad and gambling being bad and working hard being good. There was no division between the Christian values and the cultural values. They were one and the same. And then obviously things changed. Some world wars, to name a couple. But mainstream culture, at actually very different rates in America and Europe, which is something I've been obsessively reading about lately, um, they steadily stood back from Christian values, created some distance... Ask some questions of them and the widespread culturally-induced belief that a good God was the foundation of them. Post-Enlightenment, post-World Wars, mainstream culture, looked to the ideas of postmodern dualism. Spiritual and physical must be separated. Only things that can be proven scientifically are worth public discourse. There is no truth. Truth is subjective. And the church went in two directions, too. The conservative side stuck to its guns, so to speak, with this battle for the truth. No, 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 we know truth. Jesus is the way. He has come that you might know life. And on the liberal side, they went with the compassion and the loving my neighbor and social justice. And unfortunately, with taking a side, as always happens, both sides lost some pretty important stuff. The Conservatives' defense of truth demanded that culture be vilified. Our gospel is a fixed point, and we must protect ourselves from the changing evils of this world. We must tell the world about its sin. And then, in response to the cultural decay of the 60s and 70s and Roe versus Wade, among other things, the religious right took the microphone, politicized the whole thing, and rewrote the Beatitudes entirely. Blessed are the powerful, Blessed are the righteous. Blessed is my nation. Blessed are my rights. Blessed are those who protect our moral superiority against the evil cultural sodomizers and pillagers who come to murder their own children. Oh, I wasn't expecting that on that particular line. And pervert ours and poison our minds and steal our gospel of actual bullshit. And on the other side, the liberals took to heart the relativity of gospel truth. If we have opinions about truth, let's keep them to ourselves. Let's combat the judgment with acceptance of everything. Let's not offend with the idea that Jesus was God's son hang back from propagating that he literally raised from the dead, or has anything to offer other than some lovely wise sayings. Our faith is but a means of individual peace and strength. It will all be fine if we just encourage people to be good and to be well. I don't like the idea of power anyway. It never did any good. I am, of course, being grossly reductive in these caricatures, of hugely complex eras and issues and swathes and swathes of church movements. But this divergence, this duality, this two-sidedness of words ministry and deeds ministry, this strong bulb with no bloom on this cut flower with no nourishment has effectively removed from church the idea that we're supposed to be doing both influence and serve culture with good news, salt and light, Culture has changed a whole hell of a lot, but humanity has not. None of this is really new. None of this is remotely unique to America or this period of time. None of this is anything other than what our nature drives us to. Self and other, us and them, in and out. We were created in God's perfect image, his idol, his selem. Split into two and then brought together as one flesh is the language used in the story of Genesis, so that we would know mutuality, oneness between self and other, as God does in perfect relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. The only reason I'm not going to expand on any of this is because we've just done a a full um, series on Genesis, so if you're new to this language or intrigued by it in any way, then um, I do encourage you to look the podcast up. Everything else in the Bible... And everything else in everything is supposed to be understood in light of this Eden image of oneness, human beings in union, union with self, with God, and in communion with each other and with the garden around us. But the Tselem is cracked. We were made for oneness, but we are broken, and this drives us towards otherness in self, in relationship, or as pertains to this talk. In cultural engagement. But, from the moment that Jesus stood on that slope and proclaimed this new way, we have a whole new directive on how to deal with it. Him. Let Him do it. Let Him heal the crack. Let Him produce the humility, contentment Hunger to grow, compassion, willingness to work on ourselves, considerateness, commitment. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The noun peacemakers in compiled of the Greek words for peace and do or work. I'm going to leave it up there and let you pronounce it in your own time. This is the only time this word is used in Scripture as a noun, but Paul uses it as a verb in Colossians. Uh, And he uses it to describe how God created peace between, or reconciled, all things to Jesus. It's the same word. Not by waging war against a hostile enemy, but by making peace. And we have a culture in desperate need of reconciliation. Salt and light means doing things differently. We're called to stand for word and deed, truth and love, serve and influence, mercy and justice. We're not called to take sides in any of this, and I promise you I am as actively engaged in learning this in terms of the fights that I feel called to fight as anyone else. And this is absolutely not about being passive to injustice or silent in the face of abuse or maintaining the status quo so as to avoid a fight. What we're called to be is okay with conflict. Jesus says that very clearly in Matthew 10. He says it's inevitable. And then in this passage as well, in the Beatitudes, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He absolutely knew what this was going to mean. Every single one of us who says we are believers are called to be peacemakers. To reach across the aisle and see the cracked Salem on the other side. The child of God sitting right there. To not play by the black and white right and wrong rules of this world. To dark, broken, bleeding, hurting people in a hurting culture and bring oneness, light it up. With our otherworldly alternative perspective on all this. Ed and I see this as one of our most important tasks to help us all nurture and nourish this consciousness and perception about how different our way is, alternative to the consciousness and perceptions of the world around us. About the present ordering of things, alternative to recent history and church's duality. <clears throat> it means being able to hold on to the beauty and power from both sides and live in it here and now. And it involves attention. There's attention at the heart of all of this. A mature, developed, sophisticated, happy Christian mind is able to hold truths, two truths, two sides, two realities in tension. (coughs) There is a massive array of ways in which our culture, our professional, social, digital, psychosexual realities are not even remotely covered in the passages of the New Testament. It's okay to acknowledge that we don't live in the first century. It's not unbiblical to recognize, for instance, that we don't get married at 13. We've got one or two decades of sexual maturity to live through before we marry. It's okay to engage with this fact as far as the dictates of scripture go. There are gray areas. We have to accept some of these ambiguities and accept that they're unescapable but that God can bear it. He knows where we live. This kingdom is now and it is yet to come. It's our job to encourage the artists among us, the writers, the influencers, the prophets of our time. We brought these two things in today because they um, were blowing over in the wind repeatedly. Um, but they're by don't mean to embarrass you Joe they're by Joe who goes by the his artist name is Morley but if you want to see a prophet at work check out his Instagram feed guys this is truth and wisdom fed every day we have to encourage the prophets to speak truth about our culture and all the wrong turns to speak about this alternative way it's also our job to make sure that we all know what to stand for in our workplaces. for grace in meritocracies, for humility and love against gossiping and backbiting. To recognize that we just don't worship the same idols as everyone else. To make sure that we're making decisions for good of the planet, for other people, rather than personal financial gain. I know that our workplaces don't run on gospel currency but one of the necessary outworkings of being quinonia a community together is supporting each other with these mandates to put our faith in the person of Jesus who has been very clear about the currency that matters to him of love and grace the truth of the gospel is not a doctrine to subscribe to or a set of morals to fulfill it is a person It's a supernatural experience of Jesus living inside us. So truth and action are the consequences of meeting him. As well as healing. As well as restoration. As well as hope. As well as oneness. An attitude that says, not me first, you first. This is what we have to offer. The metaphors of salt and light have a very clear intrinsic message it's not about what we're supposed to do it's what we are not because of anything we do just because we know him he makes us these things and I think that some of us need to experience that again this morning to experience him taking all the work taking all the effort taking all of the things that we do to be good Christians and remind us that he is the one that does this in us.